Good morning, everyone. What a privilege it is to be here. Thank you so much for the kind invitation. Just the privilege of coming and fellowshipping with like-minded people and uh, opening the Word of God. You know the greatest miracle in all the world? The greatest miracle in all the world is not seeing someone raised from the dead. But I'd vote for that any day. The greatest miracle in all the world is not finding a miraculous cure for HIV-AIDS but many people are suffering and it would be wonderful to see a cure. The greatest miracle in all the world is not uh, solving global poverty, but many people live below the poverty line. The greatest miracle in all the world is hearing the word of God and doing something with what we hear. And so it's my profound privilege to be able to open God's Word with you this morning and discover together what it is God has in store for us. I have the, uh, the wonderful privilege of serving with a mission organization. It's called Pioneers. It's just one of many. And we don't think too highly of ourselves. It's, it's a vehicle that God is using to get the gospel from here to there. Our heart's desire is to get the gospel to places where there's very little Christian witness, where there is no church, and there are thousands of peoples in the world who live in that circumstance. Um, We have some core values that that shape and describe our movement, and those are we have a passion for God. It is the things of God and his purpose in the world that matters. We have a passion for this book, The Living Word of God. We work amongst unreached people groups or peoples with no church among them. We do it together in team because we believe in the body of Christ. We have servant leaders who don't lord it over others but serve to introduce people to Jesus. We try to um, proclaim the gospel, make disciples and plant churches that in turn will plant churches and we call that a movement of God's word, God's work around the world. And we believe in this thing called innovation and creativity. In other words, there are many ways to share the message of Christ, but the message is unchanging. But we'll do whatever it takes to get to hard places in order to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known for the sake of his glory and for the sake of lost souls. So there's about 3,000 pioneers workers around the world and um, around 250 of those missionaries are from Australia. So I have the privilege of serving as the director and my wife Joy serves on our member care team providing some care for our missionaries. We have 250 adults and several hundred children who serve in all sorts of places, 40 countries, um, all over the world. You you pick a country. Uh, Pioneers is probably there. Aussies are in 40 countries, but Pioneers globally is in 100 countries. And we thank God that he is at work. So far this year, we've sent 15 new long-term adult missionaries through Pioneers of Australia. And there's another 60 or 70 adults in the pipeline, people preparing to serve. So that's who Pioneers is. And we thank God that he is the God who's faithful through his servants. We are simply a vehicle that God is using to get the gospel from here to there. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus needed to go into Jerusalem 
And he said to his disciples, go into the city and there you'll find a colt, a donkey, upon which no one has ever ridden. Ask the owner of that donkey for it. Just say the master has need of it. And the, the disciples went in and the donkey was brought to Christ and Jesus rode it into Jerusalem. Do you remember that? That's pioneers. We're just a donkey. We're just a vehicle that God is using to get from here to there. It's all about God. It's never about pioneers. So thank you for the privilege of uh, being here and for the privilege of opening God's Word. Uh, It's my second time to be with you and I remember from last time that you're a great bunch of people. You seem like a great group of God's people. Have you ever thought of yourselves as great? In other words, do you think of yourself as greater than Isaiah? Have you ever thought of yourself as greater than King David, or Queen Esther, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel? If you answered no to that question, I want to share a verse with you this morning from the lips of Jesus Christ himself that could turn your life upside down. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 11? Matthew chapter 11. And I want to talk this morning about what it means to be a truly great person. One verse in particular is Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. And it's the Lord Jesus speaking and he says this, I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, that's very high praise. Jesus says, no one born of a woman up to that point in time is as great as John the Baptist. John the Baptist in Jesus' estimation is greater than Isaiah. John the Baptist in Jesus' estimation is greater than Job. He's greater than Jeremiah. And then he says, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So in Jesus' estimation, John the Baptist is greater than Isaiah and the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, which makes the least in the kingdom of heaven greater than Isaiah. Do you think of yourself as in the kingdom? Do you think of yourself as a person of God? Do you think of yourself as someone who's been redeemed through Christ into the family of of God? If the answer is yes, then how dare you not think of yourself as greater than Isaiah? You say, wait a minute, there's got to be something wrong with this argument. (laughs) There isn't. It's a very good argument. But we need to see the flow of the passage to see what the Lord Jesus is getting at here. So what I'd like for us to do this morning is look at this text under three headings. Three portraits Jesus paints, three pictures. And the first one is found in verse 2 and following and it's the portrait of a discouraged 
Baptist. Ever felt a bit like that? Just a bit flat? Ever get discouraged from time to time? Here's the portrait of a discouraged Baptist. Verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Well, that's an interesting question from John. John had been preaching about the coming of the Messiah. He'd been preaching about Jesus. And he finds himself in prison and one day his, his own disciples come and visit him in prison. And John says, go and ask Jesus, are you the one I've been preaching about? Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now you have to ask yourself the question, why is John having second thoughts about who Jesus is? Why is John all of a sudden unsure whether this one he's been preaching about is Jesus after all? I mean, he's in prison. And prison is an awful place to be, maybe especially in those days. But God's people suffered much worse back then and God's people have suffered much worse throughout the centuries and God's people suffer much worse than John was suffering today. He had his own disciples come and visit him. They ministered to him. They brought him things he needed. They brought him food. They brought him possessions. Why is his faith flickering? Christians suffer much worse. Do you know that this year 170,000 of your brothers and sisters around the world will be slaughtered because of their faith in Christ. And our brother Colm was speaking earlier about what it means to be sold out for Christ. You can go to a website called Voice of the Martyrs and find out what it means to follow Jesus in hard places of the world. Christians have suffered much worse why is John having second thoughts about who Jesus is? Well, the context tells us that the reason John is doubting whether Jesus is the Messiah at this point is because his own expectations of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah should be doing are not being met in Christ. In other words, it was John the Baptist who preached like this. When the Messiah comes, he will separate the wheat from the chaff and the wheat will be gathered into barns, but the chaff will be bundled up and burned. When the Messiah comes, he will sort out the good from the bad. When the Messiah comes, he'll sort out the right from the wrong. Meanwhile, Here's Jesus going around the countryside uh, preaching wonderful words and performing miracles and healing people and all that. But Rome is still Rome. Corruption is still corruption. Sin is still sin. Prison is still an awful place to be. Are you the one who was to come? 
Or should we expect someone else? John had preached that when the Messiah comes, the vindication of God means that evil will be overthrown. Everything will be different. Nothing will be the same. We can't wait for the Messiah, John preaches. And Jesus is doing wonderful things, speaking wonderful words, and sin still abounds. And so he asked the question, are you the one who was to come or should we look for another? Should we expect someone else? Now, how does Jesus respond to that very important question? Jesus responds by quoting from a book in the Old Testament that John the Baptist knew very well. Jesus responds to John's question by quoting from the book of Isaiah. And John the Baptist knows the book of Isaiah. So Jesus doesn't quote the whole of the book of Isaiah, he just quotes a small portion of it. So if I said to you this morning, um, for God so loved the world that that what? For God so loved the world that... Okay, where's that from? John 3.16. If I cite a portion of a text that you've memorised or you love or you're familiar with, I don't need to cite the whole text for you to draw up the whole context. I just need to say a few words. For God so loved the world that... And you know the whole verse. John 3.16. Most of you know the whole context. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. They had a conversation. The conversation unfolds. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But I just have few words and you know the whole context. What about the Lord is my shepherd? I shall not want. Where's that from? Psalm 23. And most of you could recite all six verses. The second most well-known verse in the whole of the Bible. Psalm 23, verse 1. But I just say a few words and you know the whole lot. What about, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. Which book is that from? Isaiah. What chapter? 53. What about, they shall look on him whom they pierced? Ah, it's getting harder. I threw that in Fred. If I cite a portion of a text that you love, all I have to do is say a small bit of it and you can recite the rest. It's exactly what Jesus does in reply to John's question. He quotes from a book John knows well. John says, are you the one who was to come or should we look for someone else? And in reply we read in verse 4, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor. That's from Isaiah a book John knows well. 
It's actually a paraphrase of Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. So in Isaiah chapter 35 we read this, The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Similarly, in Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom from the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Jesus paraphrases Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. But this is where it gets really interesting. In both of those texts in Isaiah, judgment is spoken about as well as blessing. But Jesus doesn't quote the judgment bit. He only quotes the blessing bit. And John has to know that Jesus doesn't quote the judgment bit because he knows the book of Isaiah. Just like you know, I didn't quote the whole of John 3.16 when I said, for God so loved the world. So in Isaiah 35, just before, just before it says that deaf people will hear and blind people will see and so on, we read this, your God will come, he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution he will come to save you. Oh, there's the judgment. God will come with vengeance. In Isaiah 61, just after we read about good news being preached to the poor, it says this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. In other words, Jesus quotes the blessing bit. He doesn't quote the judgment bit and because John is familiar with the text, he knows that to be true. So what's Jesus doing? Jesus is saying this, John, look around you. The blessings foretold by the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier have begun to dawn. Blind people can see, deaf people can hear, Leprosy is cured, lame people can walk, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. The blessings have dawned. The judgment hasn't come yet. That's why he says in the next verse, verse 6, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. In other words, John, just because God isn't doing things the way you think he should be doing them, hang in there. John, you don't get to call the shots. John, you're not in charge. You're not sovereign. I am, God says. And just because it isn't unfolding precisely the way you think it should, hang in there. Don't fall away. Don't fall away on account of me. The the blessings have dawned. The judgment will come later. It's coming. Oh, believe me, it's coming, Jesus says. Not yet. Now it's the time for blessing. I don't know if you ever feel yourself sort of saying, 
You know, if I were God, I'd do everything differently. If only I were in charge. If I could have it my way, then I would roll out a plan such as this, not that. And God says, well, blessed is the person who sticks with me on this. Don't fall away because things aren't panning out the way you think they should. It's the portrait of a discouraged Baptist. In my role with Pioneers, I travel quite a lot and when I was younger, or when my children were younger, when we were all younger, um, my children used to take it in turns to sleep with their mum when dad was away. And I know some of you will say, well, that's a very bad thing. You shouldn't let your children sleep with your parents because they'll never grow out of it or something. But I used to sleep with my parents when I was a little boy and I hardly ever do now. No, I'm teasing, I, I don't. <laughs> but it reminds me of the story of a, of a father and son who were sharing the same room one night when mum was away. Mum had to be away for some reason and so the father and the son slept in the same room and it came to bedtime and and, and they went to, to bed and, and this little boy was just like my little girls when they were young. They they they're wide awake. It's funny, isn't it? A parent goes to bed and they're exhausted and they just can't wait to sleep. A little child goes to bed and they're like, bing, and they like, wake up and they start talking. And this little boy was talking to his dad and they were talking about all sorts of things until eventually dad said, okay, son, I want you to go to sleep now. Um, good night, son. Good night, dad. It's a wonderful moment in the life of a parent and uh, we all long for that day and you know, oh, there's such a beautiful time of the day. Silence is just perfect for a parent and, and it only lasts about 20 seconds and the little voice pipes up again, Daddy, where's Mum? And when's she coming home? And Dad says, look, son, I, I, uh, Mum will be home in the morning. Remember, she had to be away tonight and she'll be back in the morning. Now, you've got to go to school tomorrow and I've got to go to work in the morning, so you go to sleep now, son. Good night, son. Good night, Dad. It's quiet again, perfectly quiet. And then the little voice pipes up and says, Daddy, is your face turned my way? Well, now the father just loses it. He's so angry. He just goes, he's a crazy man. I mean, I'd never do this, but someone like Pastor Gary, like just a crazy, crazy man. And he kind of just loses his temper with his boy and says, Son, I've got to go to work in the morning and you've got to go to school in the morning and it's late, and it's dark. What difference does it make if my face has turned your way? And the perceptive little voice comes back one more time and says, Daddy, it's because it's dark that I need to know your face has turned my way. And, and this is what's happening with Jesus and John here. John, it isn't working out the way you thought. You thought that when you preached about the Messiah, he would change, thing, change things immediately. But God's plan is one of patience and endurance. He's swift to bless. He's slow to anger. He's compassionate and kind and patient, not willing that any should perish. John, my face is still turned your way. Don't fall away on account of me. That's the first portrait. It's the portrait of a discouraged Baptist. The second portrait, it's a picture of a defended Baptist. The portrait of a defended Baptist. You, you can imagine the situation. 
John's disciples had visited him in prison. He sent them to see Jesus. Are you the one who was to come or should we look for someone else? Jesus says, remind John of what Isaiah said. They go back to John and now Jesus is left with the crowd. Well, you can imagine what the crowd would be saying about John. John the Baptist. How weak is he? Spends a few days in prison and, and, and now his faith is flickering. What kind of a wimp is John the Baptist? And Jesus doesn't want them to speak like that about John. And so in verse 7 we read this. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed? Swayed by the wind? John must have been some kind of preacher. People left the comfort of the city to go out into the wilderness to hear this man. And Jesus says, what did you go out to see? reed swayed by the wind have you seen a reed swayed by the wind I'll demonstrate it and I hope it doesn't look too silly is that what you went to see something tossed around by every wind of doctrine something with no spine with no backbone no see Jesus knew that they left the comfort of the city to go out into the desert because John was an outstanding voice of righteousness and integrity. He called the nation of Israel to repentance and integrity. They didn't go out to say some, some weak thing. Jesus says, verse 8, well, if not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Do you remember what John the Baptist wore? Camel's hair and a leather belt. Never really caught on, did it? You don't see that much today. Camel's hair and a leather belt. These were traditional prophetic garb described by Amos eight centuries earlier camel's hair and a leather belt. Remember what he ate? Locusts and wild honey. Mm-mm, locusts. They didn't go out to see someone really posh. Those people are in king's palaces. They didn't go out to see a weakling. They didn't go out to see someone dressed in fine clothes. So Jesus says in verse 9, then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Well, that's interesting. What does that mean? Well, Jesus explains what that means in the next verse. Verse 10. This is the one about whom it was written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Now Jesus is quoting from Malachi. 
he's saying John the Baptist is more than a prophet in this sense. He's a prophet because he came proclaiming the word of God. He's more than a prophet because he himself is the subject of prophecy. Jesus says what makes John more than a prophet is that Malachi wrote about him. When Malachi pens these words, he was writing in advance about John the Baptist. Malachi wrote, I will send my messenger, John the Baptist, ahead of you, Jesus, the Messiah, and John will prepare the way for you, Jesus, the Messiah. What makes him more than a prophet is that he's the subject of prophecy and the particular prophecy of which John the Baptist is the subject, is the prophecy that makes him out to be the one who prepares the way for the visit of the Messiah. It's within this context that Jesus says these words. I tell you the truth, verse 11. It's always a bit funny when you read Jesus saying, I tell you the truth as though, oh, this bit's true, what about all the other bits where Jesus doesn't say that? In the old King James Version, which many of us would have grown up on, it reads, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. And the New King James Version translates it, Truly, truly, I say to you. Or the Revised Standard Version is, Most assuredly, I say to you. This is the New International Version I'm reading from, and it says, I tell you the truth. Whenever you read Jesus saying, I tell you the truth, he is saying, what I am going to say next, you will find very hard to believe. But even this is true. He's saying, what I'm about to say next will blow you away. But it's true. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, unless you have the faith of a little child, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you know what the religious leaders thought when they heard Jesus say that? They found it very difficult to believe. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, it's it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. But it's true. And here Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Suppose I stood up this morning after Colm introduced me. And I said to you, I tell you the truth. Uh, The greatest man who has lived up to this point in time is Colm Doyle. Colm's like, yeah, I could live with that. That makes sense. I tell you the truth. The greatest man ever born of a woman up to this point in history is Colm Doyle because... He introduced me. It's exactly what Jesus is saying, except not about us. 
It's exactly what Jesus is saying about John. He's the greatest man who has ever lived up to this point in history, born of a woman, because he introduced me to the world. You can read about it at the baptism of Jesus. It was John the Baptist who said, there he is. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. John said things like this, how can we avoid rejoicing at the coming of the bridegroom? He must increase and I must decrease. When John bore testimony to Jesus, he said, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. When Jesus bore testimony to John, he said he's the greatest man born of a woman to ever walk the face of the earth up to this point in time because he introduced me to the world. There's a sense in which Isaiah points to Jesus. There's a sense in which Jeremiah points to Jesus. There's a sense in which David points to Jesus. But on the whole stream of redemptive history, it's given to one man to say, there he is. His name was John the Baptist. This is the one about whom it was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. That's what made John the greatest man born of a woman to walk the earth at that point in time. A discouraged Baptist, then a defended Baptist, and the final portrait is the picture of an overshadowed Baptist. So Jesus says, I tell you the truth, among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. It's the portrait of an overshadowed Baptist, an eclipsed Baptist. When you make that sort of comparison, that B is greater than A, and C is greater than B, which is what the text says, then you have to assume the same scale of comparison for the comparison to make sense. In other words, you can't say that B is greater than A in military strategy, but C is greater than B in intelligence and charm. You can't compare apples and oranges. I can't say to you, my child is the best student in the whole school because she's brilliant at English. You say, no, 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 no. My child's the best student in the whole school because he's the fastest runner. It's not a comparison. That doesn't make any sense. So when we read that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, it must be on the same scale of comparison as when Jesus says John is greater than even Isaiah. In what way was John the greatest man ever born of a woman up to that point in time? 
he pointed out who Jesus is to the world more profoundly, more directly than anyone who came before him. On the whole stream of redemptive history, one man got to say, there he is. But the person who's been a Christian three weeks can say more comprehensive things about Jesus than even John the Baptist could. And that's what makes you the greatest people on planet Earth. You get to say more about Jesus than even John the Baptist could say about him and he said more than all those who came before him. See, John doesn't know, but in three chapters he'll lose his head. He doesn't get to see Calvary's cross. He doesn't get to see Jesus the Messiah taking upon himself the sin of the world and dying on a cross and three days later by the power of God raised from the dead, conquering sin and death. He doesn't get to see the birth of the church at Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit of God in a way he had not previously come to earth. He doesn't get to see the explosive expansion of that church across the known world. But you live this side of Calvary's cross and you can say more telling things about Jesus than even John the Baptist could say and that's what makes you the greatest people alive on planet Earth. It's got nothing to do with us and everything to do with Jesus. In other words, true greatness is wrapped up in your capacity to point out who Jesus is to the world. And that's mission. Finding people who don't know Jesus and introducing them to Jesus. Crossing the room, crossing a border, crossing an ocean to take the message of God's love the lost peoples of the world. You can say more about Jesus on the basis of your salvation in Christ than any who lived pre-Calvary's cross. Makes you the greatest people in the world, but not you. It's all of Christ because you are gospel bearers. You are witnesses to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we read, I tell you the truth, among those born of women there has, risen, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Taking the gospel of Jesus to people who don't know there's a Jesus to believe in, that's mission. There are three responses to Jesus' loving commands. This command we call the Great Commission. Jesus um, preempts his some of the most profound and final words he speaks on planet Earth by saying, "All authority in heaven on an earth belongs to me. No one has more authority than me. I call the shots. I have all authority, and because I have all authority, on the basis of that principle, go and make disciples." 
and, and teach and baptize and keep doing it until I return. That's mission. That's what God calls his people to. And your greatness as people of God is wrapped up in your capacity to point out who Jesus is to the world. Let's pray. Our Father God, would you drive deep into our hearts this precious verse that we might be people who leave even today, even leave this place today to point out to others who Jesus the Christ is. We ask it for your glory and for their eternal joy in Christ. Amen.